Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 30, The Three Roads to Canossa. First, apologies for missing last week. I had to deal with a long-anticipated family issue that took me back home to Germany and left little or no time to work on the podcast. I'm actually at the airport right now writing up this episode, so it's all hands on deck. The enforced break had, however, a positive side. I could spend a bit more time on thinking about the structure of our narrative. And that is important since the time period we're entering right now is extremely complex, even by history of the German standards. And what makes it worse is that events between 1056 and 1125 go bang, 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 with important strands of the narrative happening in parallel before violently intersecting and then occasionally looping back on themselves. There is a confusing array of characters and locations, erratic behaviours and theological disputes. It's a genuine playwright's nightmare. What is needed is a framework. And that framework, which I've made up entirely out of thin air, breaks down the story into three different main historical trends. Some of them we already know quite well. So the first one is the conflict between the imperial central authority and the German magnates. That's been going on since, well since time immemorial. And the second strand is the church reform, specifically the rise of lay piety that demanded priests, monks and bishops to lead exemplary lives. And finally, the third strand is the expansion of the papacy from being just the most senior bishop into a role as a universal leader of Christendom. Now these narrative strands are nothing new. They're featured in our story before, in particular the first two. But in the second half of the 11th century, each one of them is on speed. Let's start with the imperial central power. The emperor since Henry II had aggressively expanded central imperial power and created institutions, mainly by using the imperial church system. Henry II, Conrad II and Henry III were all competent rulers, each in their own way, who exceeded the throne at the height of their abilities. They could each build on the previous ruler's achievements pulling the realm, kicking and screaming towards statehood. None of them were popular with the great families of the realm, the Barbenberger, the Etzonen, the Welf and the Hetzelina, and all three were called tyrants by their magnates. In 1056, the crown goes to a six-year-old and his foreign mother. It is payback time. We look at church reform that has also gone on for a while. Why it suddenly became all-encompassing is disputed. Some believe it was predominantly driven by the fear of the second coming of Christ around the millennium. Others, like myself, believe it was more the improvement in economic circumstances that created room for self-actualization. And self-actualization in the 11th century meant religion. Now whatever brought it about, it was a huge movement. And it was not just an intellectual movement, but a popular one too. As we will see, urban populations will go on the barricades asking for simonistic bishops to be replaced. Burgers and knights join the congregation of monks as lay brothers. What people cared about more than anything else was the route to heaven. The priests, monks and bishops were to chaperone the faithful along that route. And to be a good guide and to administer effective sacraments and prayers that were heard by the saints and angels, The churchman must not be tainted by sin. Meanwhile in Rome, the fortunes of the papacy are turning for the better, creating the third major historical trend. 
The city aristocracy, who had literally used the popes as footstools and ATMs, have lost control when Henry III became the Pope Maker in 1046. These new German popes, in particular Leo IX and Victor II, saw their role in reforming the church, not in pleasing some city mafioso. They wanted to get away from being just the Bishop of Rome, who would occasionally arbitrate broader church issues brought to him. They wanted the papacy to be proactive and to be universal. To that aim, they reorganized the church, creating the College of Cardinals. The cardinals would fan out across the world requesting better behavior from monks, the removal of simonistic priests, and, first and foremost, obedience to Rome. The Pope was to actively guide Christendom anywhere in the world. This did not automatically mean conflict with the Emperor. Leo IX and Victor II were members of the imperial church system who saw themselves as partners of the Emperor. They needed the Emperor's sharp swords to keep the Roman aristocracy down. But in the middle of the 11th century, new powers appeared in Italy, who could provide the necessary security, but simultaneously, imperial power in Italy declined. And that meant the popes needed new allies. These three strands, conflicts between imperial authority and magnates, the church reform movement, and the ascent of the papacy are not separate. They constantly intersect. Empress using the church reform movement to control the magnates, popes using empress to gain control over national churches, etc. It is on these intersections that the great historic turning points come about. And finally at Canossa all three lines of development come together in an explosive cocktail that created one of the unique features of Western European history, the separation between spiritual and secular power. Okay. Enough theorizing. Let's get into the meat of today's episode and put the new framework to the test. I hope it works, because this is going to be messy. In this first part, the focus is on the conflict between imperial central power and the magnates. Last episode, Emperor Henry III died in 1056 at the age of just 39. At the start of his reign, Henry III was the most powerful of the early German monarchs. He presided over a coherent political entity where he could maintain peace and order by edict. He directly controlled the three southern duchies, accepted vows of vassalage from the Dukes of Poland and Bohemia as well as the King of Hungary. He expanded royal power around the precious silver mines of Goslar and he removed Godfrey the Bearded as Duke of Upper Lothringia. His crowning glory was the Council of Sutri, where Henry III removed three popes and replaced them with a string of reform-minded, serious German popes. In 1046, Henry III controlled all three of the historic strands of the 11th century, that we've just discussed. But after his imperial coronation in 1046, things had begun to fall apart. The Hungarians had thrown off their king, a king that Henry III had put above them. Henry's insistence on revenge for this factless former King Peter of Hungary resulted in an endless and unwinnable war in the East. The cost of this war was borne mainly by the Bavarians and Corinthians, who stood up against their overlord when they could no longer bear it. Seeing the Hungarians gaining the upper hand was not lost on the Poles and the Bohemians, who began asserting their independence again. Bottom line was that in the 1050s, 
the situation in the southeast had become extremely fraught. Disasters only avoided because the rebellious dukes of Bavaria and Carinthia conveniently died. After the rebellion of the Bavarians and Corinthians, Henry III had become ever more suspicious of his magnates. He made first his sons and then his wife, Duke of Bavaria. In the charters of this period, only his wife and Pope Victor II are mentioned as advisors to the emperor. That suggests the magnates were excluded from one of their main roles, being advisor to the ruler. As we've heard many times before, the magnates cannot function unless they have access to the king. They are the senior managers who tell the troops that I will go and take their concerns, achievements, ideas, etc. up to the 23rd floor. If the troops find out that their senior manager no longer has a boardroom pass, they no longer follow him. Even worse for the magnates. The people that surrounded Henry III towards the end of his reign were mostly ministeriales. Ministeriales are these unfree knights, i.e. peasants with a skill for violence, who have been given a knight's training but remain serfs. Imagine how a haughty Barbenberger or Welf, whose family goes back to Charlemagne or even Clovis, feels about being pushed aside by some slave. Whilst this sense of exclusion was painful for the Bavarians, Swabians and Franconians, the Saxon nobles had moved on from here. They had been excluded from imperial favour for such a long time, they did not believe the Salian dynasty would ever let them back into their ancestral rights and privileges. The magnates been plotting behind closed doors for decades. Remember the assassination attempt on Henry III? In 1057, the Saxon dukes even considered murdering the seven-year-old King Henry IV since he is likely to follow his father in lifestyle and character. That is tough talk in a world where the murder of children of the highest aristocracy was still frowned upon. The situation in the West was no better. Unseating Godfrey as duke had not stabilized the situation in Lothringia. Au contraire, it created a vacuum that attracted new powers from both inside and outside the empire. Namely, the fiercely ambitious and competent counts of Flanders expanded their territory into the empire. And even Godfrey himself had landed on his feet when he married Beatrix, widow of the Margrave of Tuscany. That gave him de facto control over a vast territory that stretched from coast to coast in northern Italy, from Mantua to Florence and Lucca. Nobody could go from Germany to Rome or vice versa without Godfrey's say-so. Moreover, thanks to his connections in Lothringia and with the Counts of Flanders, Godfrey was the only person who could engineer peace on the western frontier. Henry III may have had premonitions that he may not be for this world for much longer, or he had simply realized that some conflicts could not be won. Anyway, in his last years he tried to find a compromise with his opponents. So just before his death he reconciled with Godfrey the Bearded. He released Godfrey's wife and stepdaughter, who had been imprisoned in Germany. He might even have promised him to get his old ducal title back, something that happened nine years later. It must have been an exceedingly painful moment for Henry III. Henry's entire policy was about curtailing his largest vassal's power. But after 16 years of war, Godfrey had become even more powerful than he would have been had Henry let things go earlier in his reign. Godfrey controlled both the western and the southern border of the empire. As we will see, he will become one of those powers that protect the popes against the Roman aristocracy, 
making him the maker and protector of popes and leader of the church reform project. And this role would pass on to his stepdaughter, the mighty Matilda, Margrave of Tuscany and shield of the papacy. When Henry III succumbed on October 5, 1056 at Botfeld, an imperial Pfalz in the Harz Mountains, he left this giant mess to his son, the six-year-old Henry IV, and the boy's mother, Agnes of Poitou. To say it right away, Agnes of Poitou is no Theophanu, and certainly no Adelheid. That is not to say she's terribly incompetent. She just isn't absolutely brilliant. And given the situation I've just described, absolutely brilliant is the baseline for a successful reign. Luckily for the first year and a half, Agnes and little Henry IV can rely on the wise counsel of Pope Victor II, the last pope installed by Henry III. Victor II was originally the Bishop of Eichstätt, a former member of the Imperial Chancery and one of Henry III's closest advisers. Pope Victor II knew where all the bodies were buried and guided the regency successfully through the first few months. He managed the complex process of the pacification of Lothringia, including the peace agreement with Flanders. He strengthened the authority of the young king by elevating him onto the throne of Charlemagne in Aachen, a ceremony rarely performed by a pope in person. Then he soothed the bruised egos of the Bavarian nobles by giving them the opportunity to formally elect the young king and in exchange the Bavarians recognized the empress as Duke of Bavaria. This started the situation almost back to the beginning of the 11th century, i.e. the power structure before Henry II. The imperial government was acting in consort and upon advice from the magnates, who in turn swore fealty to the imperial ruler. A great sigh of relief went through the ranks of dukes, counts and nobles. As they saw it, tyranny of the last three emperors was over. This satisfaction with the new imperial government structure went so far that the magnates awarded Agnes the right to designate the new king, should the young king Henry IV unexpectedly die. That was not improbable since the younger brother Conrad had died in 1055. By passing the right to make a king to Agnes, the magnates got the best of both worlds. On the one hand, the risk of an interregnum and civil war was materially reduced if only one person chooses, and on the other, this person, Agnes, was happy to run the empire along traditional lines. The honeymoon period came to an end when Pope Victor II died in 1057. Having lost the wise counsel of the former Bishop of Eichstätt, Agnes' weaknesses began to shine through. Her biggest problems were less the decisions she took, but the decisions she did not take, or delegated. Despite her long period as Henry III's closest confidant and advisor, she failed to grasp the consequences of her actions. She lost the initiative and ended up being dragged along by events rather than shaping them. The first thing she failed to do was taking direct control of the southern duchies. Carinthia had been vacant for a while, but instead of taking it over directly, she gave it to a member of the powerful Edzonen clan. Then Swabia became vacant in 1057. And as with Carinthia, the royal family could not take direct control. The duchy went to Rudolf of Rheinfelden. Rudolf von Rheinfelden would not just get Swabia, but also the administration of Burgundy, which until then was still under direct royal control. 
Rudolf von Rheinfelden even married Henry IV's sister Matilda, who he may have abducted against her, or at least her mother's will, which forced the royal family's hand. Matilda died shortly afterwards, but Rheinfelden had by now become a seriously powerful player in the southwest. Making Rheinfelden Duke of Swabia irritated the increasingly powerful Counts of Zeringen, who had built a power base on the Upper Rhine and into German-speaking Switzerland. Berthold of Zeringen claimed that he had been promised the Duchy of Swabia by Henry III and he even produced a ring as proof. True or not, Agnes felt she had at least compensated Zeringen, so he gave him the Duchy of Carinthia after the aforementioned Etzonian duke had died. And even Bavaria could not be kept in royal hands for long. Conflict with Hungary continued, despite, or maybe because, the imperial government finally agreed a reconciliation with King Andreas. Andreas' son was married to another sister of Henry IV, which should have brought the war to an end. But no. King Andreas was toppled by his brother Bela, and Henry IV's brand new brother-in-law showed up in Germany with no kingdom. Imperial honour demanded that fighting resumed and Bela's offer of peace was rejected. Basically a rerun of the wars over King Peter. Neither Agnes nor her now ten-year-old son were the right people to fight this war. Hence, Agnes had to appoint a new Duke of Bavaria, Otto von Nordheim. Otto von Nordheim was a Saxon noble deeply connected with the Saxon magnates, that just recently plotted to have little Henry run through with a lance. In one way, the deal with Nordheim worked. King Bela of Hungary capitulated, and the imperial candidate was installed as a new king. But that is a modest consolation prize, for handing all three southern duchies to men, we will find out later, will become the most dangerous enemies of the Emperor Henry IV. As the lay magnates were enjoying this fresh air of freedom and opportunity, the spiritual lords did not want to miss out either. Archbishop Anno of Cologne was one of the most rapacious. Anno was a bit of a new man, coming from a more modest background than his peers amongst the great archbishoprics of the realm. And that meant he was out to get even bigger. His main target was the lands held by the descendants of Count Ezzo, north of Cologne. The Etzonen, as they were called, were one of the great magnate families regularly being elevated to dukes of Bavaria or Carinthia and were hereditary counts palatinate with possessions along the Rhine and Ruhr Valley. When Anno comes on the stage, tensions were already running high between bishops and counts. God knows who provoked who, but in 1060 the count palatinate Henry plundered the episcopal lands and besieged Cologne itself. Anno seems to have set up his defences well, and the count had to retreat. Anno followed him and locked him into his castle at Cochem. Count Henry, scion of one of the most powerful families in the land, and a man who not long ago was seen as a potential king should the Salian house die out, could not get his head round being beaten by some country parson with a fancy hat. He went mad, like completely mad, and he decapitated his wife. Before he could go after his son, the castle guards opened the gate and let Anno's troops in. Count Henry's little son survived and became a vassal to the Church of Cologne. With that, the Archbishop of Cologne took over from one of the richest and most powerful magnates in the land. The Archbishopric of Cologne is to this day 
the richest diocese in the world. With Anno of Cologne riding high, another archbishop, Adalbert of Hamburg-Bremen, had a much rougher time under the new regime. You remember Adalbert was the ally of Henry III, who tried to keep the Saxons down and build an ecclesiastical superdiocese that stretched from Lapland to Leipzig. With his sponsor gone, world domination had to be suspended. Now we are in the year 1061, five years after Emperor Henry III had died, and it is clear Agnes is not really in charge. Actually, nobody is really in charge. The magnates do what they want. Even the abbess of Gandersheim, a salient princess no less, found herself humiliated in a court case before the papal legate. But that alone is not yet enough to explain the dramatic events of 1062, an event I remember vividly as a story from my school days, and a story that again involves Anno, the rapacious Archbishop of Cologne. As I said, the really dramatic events usually take place when two or more strands of the narrative come together. And so it is here. So let us first take a look at what happened on church reform on these last five years. In 1059, Humbert of Silver Candida, one of the most radical of the reformist thinkers, published his three books against the Simoniacs. His argument was as simple as it was radical. Any lay involvement in the election of priests, bishops, abbots, canons, etc. was a form of simony, even if no money changed hands. And furthermore, any act by a priest culpable of the sin of simony was invalid. So if a simonistic bishop would ordain a priest, even if that happened gratis, the ordination was invalid. And that meant any sacrament given by that priest would also be null and void. That would obviously create complete havoc. But on the other hand, something needed to be done. Bans and simony had been issued since the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, but to no avail. So at the Lateran Synod of 1059, Pope Nicholas II decided to take a staged approach. Quote, we decree that there should be no mercy for the Simoniacs to protect their indignity, and we condemn them according to the sanctions of the canons and the decrees of the Holy Fathers, and we declare with apostolic authority that they should be deposed. About those who were ordained by the Simoniacs, not for money but freely, since this question has now been debated for a very long time, we remove every knot of doubt, so that we permit no one henceforth to hesitate over this decree. Since the poisonous calamity of the Simoniac heresy has until now grown up to such an extent that hardly any church can be found that is not corrupted in some part by this disease, we permit those who have been freely ordained already by Simoniacs to remain in their orders, according not to the censure of justice, but to the perspective of mercy, unless perhaps some fault from their life stands against them according to the canons. There is such a multitude of these people that since we are not able to enforce the rigour of canonical vigour upon them, it is necessary that we incline our spirit for the moment to the zeal of pious condescension. We do this on condition, however, that by the authority of the Apostles Peter and Paul we absolutely forbid that any of our successors should ever take this permission of ours as a rule for themselves or anyone else, 
since the authority of the ancient fathers did not promulgate this by command or concession, but the great necessity of the time extorted it from us by permission. End quote. Bottom line is, simoniacs will be persecuted, but not if there are too many of them. These papal decrees and theological treatises against church corruption did not remain behind the thick walls of the Lateran Palace. The rise in lay piety drive calls to have well-trained and well-behaved priests. And this popular movement flipped into street violence in the largest city in Western Europe at the time, Milan. Milan had been a hotbed of revolt all the way back to the time of Conrad II. This time, it is the lowest classes, the pataria or the wreck collectors, who stand up and demand the canons and bishops live a saintlier life. They object to the senior clergy being married and having received their benefices against payment of cash. They worry that all their prayers are worthless and the doors to heaven will be barred to them. They may also be rebelling against the older grievances of overbearing Capitani families keeping a tight grip on all levers of city politics. The Petaria expel their quite obviously simonistic archbishop and his licentious canons. The Pope sent legates to negotiate a settlement. These papal legates sympathized with the urban poor and their call for change, which so matched their own mindset. And so the archbishop stayed out for years. The Pataria and the reform wing of the papacy remained allies for most of what is to come. The bishop and his party looked for help to the emperor. This is the beginning of the split in the Italian communes between the papal party and the imperial party that would later be known as the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. With church reform getting another boost, let's take a look at how the papacy as an organization has feared this last five years. As I mentioned before, Victor II, the last pope appointed by Emperor Henry III, had died in July 1057. His death put the modernizers amongst the cardinals into a panic, with the emperor just a seven-year-old boy, who will protect the papacy from sliding back into the hands of the Roman aristocracy. In their distress, they decided to elect someone quickly. The person they elected was Frederick, abbot of the great monastery of Monte Cassino. Frederick took the name of Stephen IX. Why him? Well, Stephen IX was not only the abbot of Monte Cassino, he was also the brother of Godfrey the Bearded. Yep, Godfrey the Bearded again. And Godfrey, thanks to his successful marriage, controlled central Italy from Mantua to Florence. He was close enough and had enough lances to keep the Roman aristocracy at bay. So far, so good. But what about the imperial court? The last five popes had been appointed by Emperor Henry III, and the emperor was the de facto leader of the church and greatest sponsor of church reform movement. Keeping this in mind, a delegation of cardinals, including the Cardinal Deacon Hildebrand, traveled to the imperial court to receive retroactive consent for their unauthorized election. Consent was granted even though Stephen IX could not possibly have been Agnes's choice. He was too close to Godfrey the Bearded, and her husband's personal dislike of the House of Verdun had extended to this amenable monk and key advisor to Pope Leo IX. Henry III had allegedly tried to have Frederick killed when he last came to Rome in 1055, which is why the future Pope Stephen IX had to flee behind the walls of the monastery of Monte Cassino. 
But despite all that, Agnes still confirmed Stephen IX as Pope. By the time of the papacy of Stephen IX, the College of Cardinal had become not only very powerful, but also increasingly dominated by three men, Humbert of Silver Candida, the radical anti-Simonist, St. Peter Damien, overall moderate and thoughtful, though rabid homophobe, and Hildebrandt, cardinal priest of St. Paul outside the walls. We talked about the first two extensively in the last episode. Now is time to talk about Hildebrandt. This is really worth it because he will simply dominate the story from here on. Hildebrandt was born sometime between 1020 and 1025 in Tuscany. We know practically nothing about his family. He himself said that he grew up in the bosom of the Roman Church. That suggests he probably lived in the Lateran Palace and was destined for a church career from his very first years. He may have joined a monastery upon reaching maturity, though that is not confirmed nor is clear where he would have become a monk. He first gets noticed when he acts as chaplain to Pope Gregory VI. You know, that Pope who famously bought the papacy from Benedict IX for cold hard cash. Hildebrand followed Gregory VI into exile in Cologne. In 1049, Hildebrand returns to Rome as a member of Pope Leo IX's entourage. Hildebrand seems to have made himself useful in Leo's broad restructuring program that created the College of Cardinals in the first place and the role of papal legate. Hildebrand was one of the few Romans within Leo IX's inner circle, which must have come in useful for this German pope. Leo IX undertook extensive journeys to France and Germany, asserting control over the local bishops. It was Hildebrand's job to keep control of the city of Rome. In 1054 we find Hildebrand as a papal legate in France and Germany, harassing bishops for their licentious lifestyle and heretic convictions. He is still technically only a subdeacon, but gets into fights with bishops and archbishops, which he usually wins. When Leo IX died, he rushed to Rome to ensure the Roman aristocracy does not usurp the throne of St. Peter. He strongly supports the next pope, Victor II, again an appointment by Henry III. Hildebrand actually meets Henry III and retains a huge amount of respect for the emperor. Victor II made Hildebrand his chancellor, in charge of finances and documentation. And by the time the papacy moved from Victor II to Stephen IX, Hildebrand was already one-off, if not the, dominating figure in the College of Cardinals. Stephen died within eight months of his election. This time, the Roman aristocrats did not let it slip. Within five days of the Pope's death, the Romans elected Benedict X, an old-school Pope. Benedict X was a creature of the Counts of Tusculum, or Theophylacts, who had ruled the Holy City and the Papacy for centuries before Henry III put a stop to this. But times had moved on too far to put the genie back in the bottle. The majority of the reform-minded cardinals left Rome and travelled to Florence, the capital of Godfrey the Bearded. There they met up with Hildebrand and Humbert of Silver Candida, who took charge. The cardinals elevated the local bishop of Florence as Pope Nicholas II. Godfrey the Bearded provided the muscle that pushed Benedict X out and brought Nicholas II into the city of Rome in January 1059. This time, the delegation to Empress Adelheid did not ask for consent, just for 
confirmation. The right to appoint a pope is rapidly sliding from the hands of the imperial court. In May 1059, a great synod takes place in the Palace of the Lateran. That will have wide-ranging consequences. The synod is led by our three prominent reformers, Humbert of Silva Candida, Pietro Damiano and Hildebrand. The synod did not just condemn simony, as we've already heard in this episode, it also created the process by which popes have been elected ever since. The Lateran Synod decreed that the Pope is no longer appointed by the Emperor or elevated by simple acclamation by the citizens of Rome, but should be elected by the Cardinals, specifically the Cardinal Bishops, i.e. those Cardinals that are Bishops at the same time. The Emperor was no longer directly involved in the selection of the Pope, though, quote, due regard should be given to Henry, currently king and by God's will, future emperor. The people and nobles of Rome are called upon to give an acclamation, but are not given a choice. With that, the imperial prerogative established by Louis the Pious, upheld by all four Ottonian emperors, and most explicitly exercised by Henry III, seems to have been cancelled. In hindsight, that is true. That is what we know had happened. However, it is not clear whether this was the intention of the bishops meeting in the Basilica of the Lateran in 1059. The main concerns of Hildebrand, Humbert and Peter Damien was not to throw off the yoke of imperial octroys, but to maintain the momentum of the church reform. Most specifically, they wanted to keep the Roman mafia aristocracy and the anti-reform-minded northern Italian bishops out of the selection process. It is about making sure no Benedict X could ever be legally elected again. Preventing the election of an old-school pope by papal decree is all nice and dandy, but in the world of 11th century power politics, swords count more than quills. This was not lost to the inner circle of church reformers and Hildebrand in particular. For now, yes, they have Godfrey the Bearded as the protector of the reform papacy, but who comes after him? He had no sons and his stepdaughter, Matilda, was a mere woman. Well, they did not know that this Matilda would turn into THE Matilda of Tuscany, anything but a mere woman. Hence, they needed insurance should the Roman aristocrats rise up again, should the emperor turn against the reform, or should Godfrey the Bearded die. And there were some rough-looking fellas happy to provide exactly that kind of insurance, the Normans. The Normans had kept expanding their territory in southern Italy after the Battle of Civitate, where they had beaten and captured Pope Leo IX. These guys had the strength of arms, but no legitimacy. And that gave Hildebrand an idea. He offered the two leaders of the Normans, Richard of Aversa and Robert Giscard, to make them honourable men by awarding them titles in the name of the Pope, in exchange for military support against the Roman aristocracy and even the emperors. That was a sweet deal for both sides. The papacy did not give away anything, since they did not really have a claim to be overlord of Sicily and southern Italy in the first place. For the Normans, it was even better, since they would have to fight the Romans and the Empress anyway, since they had stolen their land, and now they were soldiers of St. Peter and get a free ticket to heaven. The only one who loses was the imperial court, namely Empress Agnes. Meanwhile in Rome, Pope Nicholas II died and the cardinals get a chance to road-test their brand new system for papal elections. 
they elevated the Bishop Anselm of Lucca to be Pope, who took the name of Alexander II. Anselm was well known at the imperial court, had been invested as Bishop of Lucca by Henry III, and had come to Germany several times as a papal legate. So he wasn't an anti-imperial candidate per se. The problem was that the cardinal electors, as per the rules established in 1059, had not asked the empress for approval or even confirmation. And that was when she decided to finally do something. After years of passivity, she finally moves. And what a move that was. She received a delegation of Roman aristocrats and northern Italian bishops who were concerned about constant papal meddling in their affairs. There were more than a few bishops and canons who did not like being asked by some pesky papal legate who the father of all these kids were who run round the Episcopal Palace. This alliance of anti-reform conservative forces suggested the bishop Cardalus of Parma as the new pope. Agnes agreed and appointed him as Pope Honorius III. We now have a papal schism. And a bad one at that. Previously, schisms did not matter that much, since the Pope was mostly acting as Bishop of Rome and had little influence in, say, Reims or Trier or Canterbury. But now, after 15 years of proactive popes and cardinal legates driving reform in every realm of Christendom, now it matters who is the Pope. And the schism was blamed on Agnes, with some justification. What makes it even worse for her is that her Pope was with the bad guys. The Roman Mafia aristocracy and corrupt bishops is not exactly the kind of company a devout empress and widow of the great protector of church reform should keep. The military situation for Catalus's pope was not entirely hopeless, since he could rely on support amongst northern Italian bishops and the leaders in Rome. Hildebrand, by now archdeacon of the papacy, aka prime minister, created a papal militia, which over time would turn into the papal armies of the 15th and 16th century. His opponents will later claim that he led the troops himself yielding the sword. But, irrespect of military success or failure, the campaign was a PR disaster of epic proportions. The empire looked bad, like really, really bad. This is not just about power politics. This is a fight over access to heaven and eternal life. The emperor had gone from being the natural leader of the progressive reform movement to being the champion of the reactionary forces. How could that be squared with the emperor as the representative of Christ on earth, a notion that the last three emperors had set out so clearly? When Agnes realized what she had done, she froze. Her entire background was in church reform movement. After all, her grandfather had founded the Abbey of Cluny. She took to her bed, pulled up the duvet over her face, and left all government activity to her advisers. Something needed to be done. It was clear Agnes of Poitou was past her sell-by date. She needed to be neutralized before any more damage could be done. In 1062, the court stayed at the imperial palace of Kaiserswerth, today a part of Düsseldorf. The palace stands right by the river Rhine. At the end of the feast, Archbishop Anno of Cologne invited the 12-year-old King Henry IV to check out his new luxury boat that was moored in the centre of the stream. As soon as young Henry came on board, Archbishop Anno of Cologne gave the order to raise the anchor. 
Anno's soldiers surrounded the young king and the rowers began pulling away towards the city of Cologne, 20 miles upstream. Henry IV, realizing he was being abducted, jumped overboard. Unlike his ancestor Otto II, Henry could not swim. He would have almost certainly have drowned in the cold and fast-flowing river that day had not Count Egbert jumped after him and dragged him out. Anno and his co-conspirators made it to Cologne and formed a new imperial government. Agnes of Poitou resigned. The new government put an end to the schism of Cajolus. But it was too late. The imperial reputation was broken. The church reform movement looked to the popes and cardinals to bring about change. Anno of Cologne may have chaired the initial synod that ended the schism, but he soon found himself on the back benches. Alexander II and Hildebrand were now in charge. From now on, no medieval emperor would ever have the influence over the church that Henry III had in 1046. And Kaiserswerd had another effect. The young Henry IV will never forget how he was betrayed by his magnates. He would never believe that the dukes, counts and bishops of his realm would ever give him advice that was anything but driven by self-interest. Henry IV will rely even more on a small group of often lower status ministeriales and the senior nobles had their boardroom passes cancelled. And Henry IV retained a deep hatred for the hijacking Archbishop Anno of Cologne. On March 29, 1065, Henry IV celebrated his Schwertleite at the Cathedral of Worms, a ceremony that declared him formally an adult and began his direct rule. And as soon as he's been girded with his sword, he pulled it to go after Anno of Cologne, and only his mother's quick intervention saved the archbishop's life. Next week, we will see how this impulsive young man deals with the next chapter in the escalating conflict. Tensions in Saxony flare up into outright war, Bishop Adalbert of Hamburg gained the young king's confidence and established a rapacious regime that stripped the imperial treasury bare. Magnates are feuding with each other and the peace and order Henry III still maintained is crumbling. To top it off, Henry IV goes full teenager and wants a divorce. Whilst the most aggressive and most politically astute of the reformers, Hildebrand, becomes Pope as Gregory VII. I hope I see you then, and if you enjoy the history of the Germans, spread the word on social media, on your podcast app, on my website, or even old school, by talking to people. <laughs>